If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Isaiah. We're in chapters 56 through 58. Man, it was so good to have the kids with us in the room to start off. Um, I had a flashback as the kids were exiting. It was a couple years ago. My youngest son uh, led the charge to the classrooms, and he led it by jumping and kicking the door. And I was simultaneously embarrassed and proud. <laughs> this is a pretty sweet kick. I, I don't fix those doors. So um, anyway, he's, he's matured. He did not do that today from what I could tell. Anyway, we're in Isaiah uh, 56 uh, through 58. Um, if you've been with us, like, like it's been mentioned, we've just been making our way through uh, the book of Isaiah. Last week we were in 54 and 55. And um, as a reader, uh, it almost seems like we could just end at Isaiah 55. I mean, it's, it's certainly a high watermark of the book because we, we see the, the news of salvation, the call to come to the Lord, the promises uh, for his people. Uh, but there is more that the prophet has to say, and praise God for that. In, t- in our chapters today, God's people are called to live like they really are God's people, like they actually are, are a people that have been saved by the Lord and, and are responding with, with lives that just overflow with, with his goodness and the things that he wants. So let's jump in um, verse one of chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So keep justice, do righteousness. This could come across um, as actually negating the grace that we have just read about in previous chapters. This could be mistaken for a line of thinking that salvation is earned by us working hard, by us doing everything that we can to merit God's favor. But then we look at the very next line, it says, for soon, my salvation will come, my righteousness be revealed. So keeping justice, doing righteousness is not some way to obtain salvation. No, it's a response to the promised salvation that is coming. If you remember back in chapters 1 through 39, uh, those were, those were kind of hard chapters to get through as we read about the righteousness required um, by God. It was laid out in those chapters. And and what made it hard was it was clear that the people, that no one could produce this righteousness required. No one could meet this righteous standard. And and then we transitioned to chapters 45 through 55, or 40 through 55 that we just wrapped up. And it revealed that God is the one who will produce this righteousness for his people. He would provide that them. And now God's people are to respond to what God alone can do and has done for his people. That all those who trust in Yahweh for salvation, that they're called to live out what God loves. That they would live these righteous lives. I, uh, in my own Bible reading, I was, uh, made it uh, through the epistles this last week, and I was reminded that Paul, he's so good, at, and in each of his letters, he, he slips in there something along the lines of the, that we're to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Right? So in, in other words, if you're Christ, your life ought to reflect 
Christ. Your life ought to be different because he has saved you. He has called you his own. You are his people. So your living should be congruent with your beliefs. And it's far from striving to, to live this way to gain salvation. It's an overflowing heart response to the grace of God. It's a response of a grateful heart that understands that what God has done in saving them is completely undeserved favor that he's given us. So the beginning of 56 goes on and it gives us a wide understanding of who, uh, who can be a part of the people of God. Uh, there's an in inclusivity uh, of the community that God is gathering. Right? It doesn't matter where people have come from. It doesn't matter what they've done. What matters is, is those who join themselves to Yahweh. So anyone that responds to, to God, that joins himself to him, that, that lives in God, God's ways, as verse 2 says, these will be his people. And then in verse 7 uh, and 8, it says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And then verse 9 and following describes how this community really is, because the previous verses through about verse eight, it's, it's really uh, an idyllic picture of God's community. But then verse nine, it's like, this is, this is what it's, it's really like. And, and it goes into the leaders who are just horrible. They're, they're described as being blind and lazy. They have no understanding of God or his ways. They've turned to their own way. They're doing what's right in their own, uh, in their own eyes, and they couldn't be further from the truth. And then chapter 57, verse 3, begins this contrast between the righteous and the idolaters. Uh, and it's, it's a stark contrast to what we just read in, in 56.7. Instead of God bringing them to his holy mountain, they're finding their own mountain. And they're offering their own sacrifices. And, and it's detestable. Verses 5 and 6, they're offering child sacrifices. And and we read that, and I don't even know if we can really wrap our minds around that even being real. Right? But, but this is what they thought was good in their eyes. This, this was their worship. Verse, verses 7 through 10, they continue in their pagan practices. And then verse 11 says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Haven't I held my peace even for a long time? And you... Do not fear me. So then verse 13, he says, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And, and these last words in verse 13 serve both as a rebuke to the wicked, but also a comfort to those trusting in the Lord, to the one who trusts in Yahweh. He, she will inherit the mountain of Yahweh. They will be with their God. And we see this throughout these chapters that, that God's presence is with his people. And if that's what we have, what else could we possibly need? Chapter 58, if you read it this week, there's echoes clear back to chapter one. And certainly there's plenty of, of, uh, of things that are different, but, but there's so many similarities Chapter one looks also at not living obediently, but the tone 
is threatening. Right? If you don't obey, then destruction is coming your way. But now in 58, it's if you obey, blessing will come. So there's been this stark change between these chapters. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that there's been a change in the situation. The servant, who we've read about over the last several chapters, the servant will atone for the sins of the people, which changes absolutely everything. It's no longer the people trying to meet a righteous standard. It's the servant who has come. He's met the righteous requirement for them. He's reached down to them, offering his hand of favor. And all they need to do, as one commentator put it, is grasp his hand by living God's ways. So we come in, in verses one through five, we see a religion that's superficial. It's disconnected from the heart. The religious activities of these people, they haven't extended to the way that they treat others around them. And in particular, uh, those who have less power. So what should happen is that God's people receive God's grace and then that grace flows out of them to everyone around them. Everyone that, that they're around should, should get um, uh, uh, shrapnel is the only word I can think of, <laughs> of God's grace. As they're hit by God's grace, there should be this, this impact on others uh, that receive God's grace through them. Verse one of chapter 58. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near. And this, uh, this is strange to read, or maybe you got it right away the first time you read it, but there are things in here that, that sound right, that they're doing some of the things that they've been commanded to do, but clearly there's a disconnect. Verse one, the, the prophet's told, hey, you need, to, you need to cry aloud. You need to be like a trumpet, just blasting this, this warning to my people. And the reason for the warning is the people need to understand their sin, which so far this makes sense. But then verse two, it says, yet they seek me daily. And it says, delighting to know my ways. Both of those sound good. Both of those sound like that's exactly what, what we would want someone to do. If a newer Christian came to you and said, how, how do I follow Jesus? What do I need to do? Uh, there's probably several things that you would tell them, but among those, you'd probably say, yeah, you need to seek the Lord daily and, and you need to delight. You need to love in knowing God's ways. That would be sound advice. But then in the verse, we get a clue with the next phrase when it says, as if, right? So what follows it's, is as if it might look true, but it isn't. They aren't genuine in their righteousness. They aren't sincerely drawn near to God. And if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, this should make us pause, right? This should, this should really make us consider our own following of our Lord. Here are people that think they're living according to God's ways. Externally, uh, at least most of what they do, it looks like godliness. These are people who are serious about following God. They're incredibly committed to their religion. 
right? They hear words like in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, forsake your wickedness. And they've got a laser-like focus on that. They're doing a lot of right things. And we feel so good about ourselves when we do the right things. And we're able to fool others. But what's scarier is we're able to fool ourselves. So these are people that are doing righteous since they ask they, they, they think they're doing so good that they ask God for his righteous judgments. But man, it would be a terrible surprise to them if God answered that request. This passage reminds me of back in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a command taught by men. This isn't a new concept to us. We see this throughout scripture Right? That there's this drawing near to God by doing what we're supposed to do. They pay lip service to God, but their hearts couldn't be further from the Lord. We see this lived out in the New Testament through the Pharisees. Right? They, they followed rule upon rule, and they made up more rules to help them follow the rules established by God. And yet their hearts were not about God's righteousness. It wasn't about knowing God. It wasn't about living for his glory. It was about their righteousness. It was about living for what they wanted, what, what they wanted their own glory. And this is a real danger for every believer. And it doesn't start out this way. At least I don't think for many when you start following God. But following God can seamlessly transition into this kind of religion that has the form. Like it looks right, but it misses the truth that these forms were intended to convey. I'm guessing if you drive, all of us have probably done this at some point. You, you, you drive, you're driving to a place that you probably drive to multiple times a week, right? So years later, like maybe, maybe you've driven to this place a hundred times, maybe, maybe even a thousand times. You're driving along, your mind's preoccupied that day. And before you know it, you're at your destination. And, and, and you're like, man, how did I even get here, not like an out-of-body experience or anything like that, but how did I just go through the motions of making all those turns at, at stopping and going at those lights? It's a little scary. And you're thankful, at least I'm always thankful, like, praise God I didn't hit someone, or, or praise God they gave me green lights or helped me to notice when a light was red. Man, I don't want to follow Jesus that way. I don't want to do that for a day. I don't want to do that for a week. I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, man, how did I get here? Was I just going through the motions? Because it's so easy as we follow Jesus for years and years for, for there to be a familiarity of how we're supposed to live. And yet we let our heart get just disconnected from worshiping God. Our heart was never meant to be disconnected from our worship of the Lord. Our actions, are, they're, they're evidence of a heart that obeys God. Verse three gives us insight in, into how these people are thinking. They're complaining. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, the Lord says, and, and oppress all your workers. So the, these verses in the beginning of chapter um, 58, they're not, they're not so much about fasting as much as they are about what pleases the Lord, right? He's using fasting here to, to help us see 
how we can uh, try to live for God or think that we're living for God and yet be so far off. What this is about is, is what pleases our Lord, what is, what is true worship of our Lord. So these people, they're depriving themselves in, in this example of food in order to get something from God. And verse three tells us God isn't responding. And they're sure that he doesn't even see their fasting, right? He doesn't even appear to be aware. He certainly has not acknowledged what they're doing unto him. And they're frustrated, right? They're, they might be asking like, why in the world are we gonna fast if it doesn't even do us any good, if God doesn't do what we want? And, and it's easy to think this way, right? That if I do this or if I don't do this sin, then God will give me what I want. God will do the things that I want. Right? We get in this if-then mode, um, and, and we think that God will respond the way that we, that we believe he should. I can fall into this so easily, and my guess is you do as well. Right? We want God to be transactional. We want a formula that if I do this, then this. But the funny thing is, and we'll see this later, the if-then that God has is so different than our if then. We think if, if I do this thing, if I make this, this deposit into my righteous savings account, then God will hook me up with what I want. Rather than worship, we're trying to manipulate God. Right? We take what's supposed to be about him and we twist it for our own pleasure. In Leviticus, there was uh, a day of fasting decreed in chapter 16 on the day of atonement. And one was to uh, uh, afflict the soul. Uh, and it's a phrase that would become synonymous with fasting in Scripture. So the purpose of the fast was to meditate on the reality of one's sin and, and the grace of God in order, uh, or and the grace of God as He atoned for sin. Uh, and there are many other fasts certainly called throughout Israel's history. And the point every time was genuine repentance before the Lord, right? Recognizing having true conviction that the ways of humanity are just rebellion against their creator and that God's way is right and good. And certainly accompanied with that was this belief, this sense that God responds to repentance and that God would forgive because that is who he is. So it's easy for us to imagine uh, people thinking, okay, if I do this, then God will do this, right? We just think so transactionally. So the form or the outward appearance of repentance happens without the true conviction, expecting that God will still forgive. Right? Repentance has never been about getting, getting God to do something. It's a genuine conviction of how wrong our sin is, that it's an offense against God, the Holy One. It's a recognition that what we worship doesn't hold a candle to God, that he alone is worthy, as Isaiah has, has told us over and over again, there's none like him. And then the shocking news is that God, in his grace, forgives us. But here with these people, in this example, there's no repentance. There, there's just this external uh, form that looks like repentance by fasting, but it's got a detachment between this action and their heart. There's an affliction of the body, but not an affliction of the soul. It is the appearance of godliness, but, but it went no further than their stomachs. It was all about them, and their actions prove it. And the end of verse 3 says, you oppress all your workers. Verse 4, behold, you fast, and what do you do? Only to quarrel and fight 
to hit with a wicked fist, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. It's, it's ironic that they think that this would be how God, how they would get God to hear them. Right? And this is like the Christian that, that raises their hand on Sundays, singing out to the Lord. And then on Monday at school, they're cheating on the exam or lying to get that sale at work. This is the Christian that goes to the Bible study and shares all their deep insights and then goes home and, and berates their family. Or they go to a prayer meeting and then they get home and just scour the internet to satisfy their desires. Verse five, it says, is, is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Right? Is this really what you think a fast is? You don't eat, you bow your head just like a, a broken reed. You throw some sackcloth on and some ashes. No, that's not, God's saying, that's not what I ever wanted from you. I, I didn't want you to just go through the motions and look, look like you're doing the right thing. And, and, then, and then verse six, we, we see, right? We see what godly living is associated with genuine fasting. And again, this isn't primarily about fasting. The, the end of the chapter, verses 13, it, it transitions to, to Sabbath. I think it helps us see like, oh yeah, okay, these two examples are all about what pleases God, right? What, what pleases God? There needs to be a congruence between uh, the internal and the external. And it's like a flashback to Sermon on the Mount if you were with us several months ago, right? This whole person, this whole person righteous living. So verse six, he says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And, and I'm not going to get into all the ways that we do need to care for the poor. Like if, if you read your Bible and, and think that we, we aren't supposed to care for the poor, man, you're wrong. Um, but, but again, this passage isn't primarily about that. Uh, I'm assuming that you know that that is true. But here there, there's a rhetorical question. Isn't this the fast that I choose? Right? And then what's interesting is he doesn't talk about fasting. He doesn't lay out, okay, this is how you fast from, from sunup to sundown, or, or you, can drink, you can drink water, but not coffee or tea. No, he, he goes into um, to how, how God's people that, that, that genuinely seek him, that genuinely fast, this is how they live. It's so interesting to me, and I talked about this a few months ago, that we can take fasting and turn this self-denial into a total self-focus, just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? They fast so that they'll get noticed, that, that that's their reward. And, and we're either doing that, trying to demonstrate to others how godly we are, how religious we are, or we're trying to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. And here the prophet calls God's people to express dependence on God in a way that, that should have less opportunity to make it about them. However, we're so good at making everything about us. Right? De depriving themselves 
here is aimed at others. It's aimed at the poor. It's aimed at the mistreated. It's aimed at the hopeless. And, and doesn't all of this just sound like our God? Right? He gives himself to those who could never repay. Everything that, that we read here in these short verses, we've read about this in Isaiah, that God is going to do this. He cares about this. These are the things that he will accomplish. So it shouldn't shock us that he's going to use his people to do that. Before we read about the, the servant, the Messiah, we, we read about Israel, the servant, and their failings as they were to go out and be God's people. They were to do these very things. So it's no surprise that after reading about the servant that will atone, that will produce a righteousness in his people, that he will then empower his people to live in these ways, to bring out the things that, that he cares for, that they will fight for the poor, they will... They will battle for the oppressed. They'll battle against wickedness. God's people should reflect God. The fourth line of verse six, it says to let the oppressed go free. And, and so much, obviously, of what Israel longed for as they were exiled was freedom. And, and ultimately, whether they understood it or not, it was freedom from sin. And more recently in Isaiah, we've come to see that the work of the servant sets the people free. So the question I think we always have to ask ourselves as, as free people because of Christ is what are we doing with that freedom that God has given us? Do we keep that freedom for ourselves or are we extending it to others? And if God has set you free, it only makes sense that that same freedom should flow out of God's people wherever it can in every relationship that we have. Verse eight. It says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. When God's people live like people that have been saved by God, people that have been saturated in the grace of God, people that understand his goodness, people that have a deep understanding of his rich mercy, people that have been loved by God, then we will be a people that love God like no one else, and our light will burst forth just like the rising sun. I just look at our world right now. I'm like, man, how much does our world need Christians that will let the light of God shine through them? And yet I think there's probably a number of reasons, but I think we're pretty afraid in our country to let our light shine forth. I think we're tempted again, like back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the temptation to take our light and to hide it behind something to obscure this light of God, right? The, the good news of salvation through God. And yet we're, we're afraid of what friends or neighbors or, or coworkers or family members might think of us. And yet what they need is they need the light of God to burst forth in their lives like it did in ours. People that live to glorify him have God's very presence with him as, as the end of the verse helps us see. Right, that the, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. As I've been reading about God's presence this week here, I just keep thinking, man, what else do I need? Like, why am I afraid? Why, why, why do I run to anything else? If I have God's presence, I have everything. Verse nine, it says, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out, for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. 
So rather than show, uh, show how much you love God by fasting, by making yourself hungry, he says, pour yourself out for God by alleviating hunger for someone that's actually in need. And those who live this way, it says, God hears their call. And not only does he hear it, he answers them. Unlike verse three, where they're frustrated that God isn't hearing them. He, he doesn't seem to see all the religious hoops that they're jumping through. And they're confused. Man, why can't I get God to do the things I want him to do? Well, it's because you're living for your own pleasure instead of God's. Right? The, the if then is different. Right? We, we, we pour ourselves out to others in a, as a response to who our God is. And, and he gives us everything. And to us, this is backwards thinking. Right? We, we think if I give too much, then I'm going to run out. And God says, no. No, you serve others. I'm going to give you everything that you need. All right, listen to what he, he says he'll do when, when our, our focus uh, of our worship is on him, when we live for his own pleasure. He says, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your, and your gloom be as the noonday, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually. He'll satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Right? Just in that little verse, there's so much crammed in that, that God will do when, when we live the way he calls us to. He says, you'll be guided continually. Right? Never having to fear that, that God is, is going to leave us on our own. And, and we know that throughout scripture, many, many places. It, it tells us that God will never leave or, or forsake us. Right? We remember Jesus. He promised to his followers that when when he ascended to go be with the Father, who would come? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come, and, and what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, among other things, it, it, the Holy Spirit guides believers. How does the Spirit guide? Well, it reminds us of truth, helps us understand the truths of the Word. Right? The Spirit guides us in, in wisdom. We, we, don't need, we don't need to search on our own. God is our guide. It says he satisfies your desires in scorched places. Right? In all those places that seem dead, he'll bring life. He says it makes your bones strong. Right? He'll, he'll strengthen you. Have you needed to be strengthened by the Lord recently? I know I have. And my guess is I'm not that different than many of you, that, that you've just been worn out. I've been tired. There have been times of uh, just discouragement. Maybe you've questioned, like, man, how much longer can I keep moving forward? And, and one thing in 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 how hard some of the times have been recently for me is it's been hard to fool myself into thinking I can do anything apart from Christ. It's been really obvious how lacking I am in my own. And God is, is so good to strengthen us, to sustain us. Uh, I've thought so much more uh, about the, the image of daily bread in, in this last year or so. Right. Most of my life, I, if I'm honest, I was living like I had bread in the freezer. Like I, I thought I was good for days, maybe weeks. But man, in the last, I don't know, year, 
There are times like, yes, I need your daily bread right now. Like not, not even just daily bread. It's like I need moment bread right now, Lord. And, and the God and our God sustains us. He says, you'll be like a watered garden, right? And just, just a verse ago, he says, pour yourself out. And now a verse later, he says, I'll pour into you. You're going to be like this watered garden that, that is completely taken care of. It's totally flourishing. And our God is so good to provide for us. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a conversation I want to let you guys know about um, that I had with our, our uh, global partners in Indonesia. And, and we're live streaming, so I'm not going to say their names right now. Hopefully you know who they are. They're, they're our most recent um, missionaries that we've added, but we need to pray for them. I was on the phone with them a week and a half ago and just crying with them. They, uh, they've been stuck here in the States trying to get back to Indonesia. I mean, since, since COVID started, really. Um, and they had just finally gotten their visas. Everything was lined up. They bought their plane tickets um, to fly out, I think, like about two, two and a half weeks ago. And, and they, they found out that uh, uh, two people in their family, uh, there's medications that they will not be able to get in Indonesia. Like there's, there's no way around it. Um, so they cannot go. Right? All their plans. And, and they've, they've been in Indonesia, I think it's the last seven years, they've been serving there with this team. So they're crushed. They, they're, they're so sad right now. I mean, it, it was so sad to talk with, with him and, and hear about how hard it is and, and, and trying to trust the Lord and, and look forward. He was telling me, and we need to pray for their oldest daughter. He's telling me their oldest daughter, she's just broken because all she wanted to do is get back to what's been her home almost her whole life. And, and so she's, she's frustrated. She's acting out. And, and, and you can imagine as a parent, when, when you're already devastated and your kid acts out because of the, thing that, the same thing you're sad about, and then you overreact and realize what's going on. So anyway, we got to pray for them. But, but I want to share two, two ways that God's provided for them that I just love. So obviously they were moving, so they didn't need the, the place that they were staying in anymore. Someone else is going to move in there. And then they find out, nope. We're not going. And they only had like a day or two to figure out where they're going to move to. And God instantly like took care of that need. They didn't have a car either. Someone called up the church and said, hey, I heard our missionaries aren't getting to go. I'll donate my van to them. Like instantly God took, took care of them in these two incredibly practical needs. And, and, uh, and, and he was just praising the Lord with me that even in this deep discouragement, they can see God provide. So we need to pray, but remember that our God provides for us, right? Like this spring, this constant water that will not fail. I wonder though, how often as Christ followers, we're, we're tempted to not really pour ourselves out for others because we don't think God really will provide, right? Maybe we want to leave a little bit left in the tank to make sure that we have enough. And, and yes, it is true, right, that, that, that everyone needs rest. Rest is, is a part of trusting that, that God is the one who is at work, that God is the one who provides, provides. It's true that God has designed all of us with limitations, right? I'm not speaking against boundaries or any of that. But at some point in the name of boundaries, in the name of self-care, we get selfish and we aren't pouring ourselves out. It's like we're drizzling ourselves out. We're sprinkling a little bit there, but what we're really concerned about is us. And I thank God for Paul's example. In a couple places, Paul says that he just wants to pour himself out like a drink offering, just trusting that the Lord will provide. 
Verse 12, we don't even have much time to get into this, but it says, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. Uh, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Man, I don't know how many times I've read this and I thought it said that God was going to uh, rebuild here, that he was going to raise up the foundations. But it says here, like you shall raise up the foundations. You shall be called the repairer, the restorer, of the streets, right? That, that somehow this is going to happen. And, and obviously it's God that's backing it. God's backing this project, but he's calling his people to do this. And there's some kind of fame that they get that people know like, yes, God's people are the ones that have rebuilt this. Verse 13 and 14 closes out our, our chapter. And, and I think it helps us see, oh yes, this isn't just about fasting. This is about what pleases the Lord, because suddenly the prophet moves to the Sabbath. And so we have to ask ourselves, is my worship actually about God? Is it about what pleases him? Is it about what he wants? Or have I twisted it? Have I made it about me? Verse 13 and 14 says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Sabbath is when the people were to cease work. Right? Every week they had this weekly reminder that they depended on God, that God was the one that provided for their needs. So one out of seven days, they would give to the Lord their times and their concerns, recognizing that they're both already his. The Sabbath was a regular reminder to God's people about what mattered and what really didn't, about who they were and who their God was. A reminder that all they were and all they had were God's already. God wants all of you, every part of you, not, not just parts of your behavior, not just like Sunday morning you or Bible study you. Like, like we looked at for weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, he wants this whole person devoted to him in their heart, in their actions, every part of them. This, this person that's up on the altar is this fragrant aroma to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you that Isaiah 55 uh, is not the end of the book because I needed, I needed to wrestle through a, a lot of things this week in, in, in these chapters, Lord. Uh, I needed to be reminded of, of how easy it is for me to, to just be wrote in, in, my, in my worship of you. God, I am so capable, I'm so good at going through the motions, Lord. God, I, I don't want to be like that, Lord. I, I want to be a person that, that lives for you. We want that, God. We want to be a people that, that are poured out for you, that, that we would be like, like Paul talks about, that we'd be like the drink offering, just pouring every part of ourselves out, trusting, God, that you are good, that you are going to work, that you'll provide everything that we need, Jesus. Lord, we, we love you, and we ask that, that you would make us more and more 
to, to not just look like people that, that are yours, but, but to, to live, to be the, the people of God, people that have been radically changed by your blood, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.